Welcome, Aaron Wathen, to the Narrative Preacher Podcast. We are so happy to have you. Uh, folks who are readers of Pathios might know Aaron from her Irreverend blog. That's pathios.com slash blog slash Irreverend, I-R-R-E-V-E-R-I-N. And if you're not familiar with that blog, you now have an opportunity to be familiar because I just told you where it is. Aaron, would you like to tell the people who you are and what you're about? Sure. I'm uh, Aaron Wathen. I'm the senior pastor at St. Andrew Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Olathe, Kansas, and that is a suburb of the Kansas City metro area. Um, I've been serving here for three years and uh, was in was in Arizona for seven years before that and originally from Kentucky. So that's that's my life in geography. And uh, like I said, I've been here three going on four years and um, have have spent a lot of that time just kind of getting to know the, the neighborhood as much as as much as anything else, but also enjoying Kansas City area. St. Andrew is about a is a 25 year old church. We just had our 25 year anniversary back in May, and they have been uh, an intentionally progressive congregation since the very beginning. Since day one, they were uh, they were open and affirming long before many mainline churches were even having that conversation. They've always been uh, very focused on the environment, affirming of women in leadership, um, and and very cognizant of justice issues, racial, economic, and otherwise. Uh, and so, as you might imagine, it's it's an interesting time to be in a in a context like that. We're finding in the the current uh, cultural climate, there are more and more people who uh, maybe have not been involved in a faith community in a very long time, or are looking for for a place to be connected with with folks who share those values so it's uh it's an exciting time and yet at the same time you're in kansas so interesting yeah but we're we're also in the metro area so anytime i i feel like even in kansas and even in in this pretty um conservative pocket of kansas there are there are a lot of progressive folks um and even more moderates probably who are a little bit against the against the common thread of, of what you might associate with the rest of the mm-hmm. state. When uh, when I was serving a church in Kansas, my senior pastor went out to the state house to speak with some legislators about some concerns that were had and fell into a conversation with the chaplain of the state legislature who told him that he believed that North uh, Eastern Johnson County was a spiritual dark spot in Kansas. So, uh, you're in good company out there from what I yeah. understand. <laughs> all the, all the heretics get together for coffee. For yeah. Just, yeah. Just Johnson County. Terrible, right. terrible place. I recall Brownback referring to that as not the real Kansas as well. So, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Well, anyway, uh, this is not a Kansas podcast. So, Aaron, would you like to tell us about your preaching style? I, I would love to. I don't really have a good um, model or or anything to associate myself with. I tend to. So over the last few years of my ministry, I have I have realized that I'm I'm really a writer 
um, maybe a writer first by identity and a preacher just by calling and, uh, you know, the, the way the spirit moves. But I, I, I really primarily identify as a writer. And okay. so um, I have I've kind of forced myself to get out of the manuscript writing practice because I found that I, what I wound up doing is writing something like an essay or a, mm. a blog post that has, and I, I spend a lot of time on polishing and, and making it read like a term paper, um, which it's fine in a pinch. You know, if I'm, if I'm tired or pressed for time a certain week, um, or I know there are going to be distractions on Sunday morning, it's nice to have that that solid piece of paper in my hand that I can just, just read, but I've really worked towards um, a more conversational style mm-hmm. so that I'm not completely relying on, on the way that I write to also be my preaching voice, if that makes sense. Uh, but at the same time, I think I get to the sermon by way of the, the writing process, the same, some of the same creative practices. So I start, um, Every week I spend, I spend some time reading commentary and I read both online and whatever I find on the bookshelf that's, that's relevant. And I kind of scribble manically as I go, just writing down notes and stream of consciousness kinds of things. Um, and then I go back through and I circle and star the things that, that seem like they actually matter or are going to resonate, uh, where we are. And then I kind of look back through that and, and some kind of shape or pattern usually emerges, um, without a lot of effort on my part. So at that point, it's a matter of, uh, translating, translating that pattern or that shape, um, onto, I use it just a series of note cards. I wouldn't even call it an outline. Okay. But I just kind of, I, I try to condense those notes down to about, four or five note cards and try to include a story that uh, that works to draw that particular passage into our current context. And I've moved almost entirely away from, you know, the anecdote. I think as, as preachers, we tend to rely on, on anecdotes a lot, but um, I've, I've started more and more using, using current events to draw those scriptures into life because I feel like that puts us much more in the moment and, and much more into a um, kind of practical embodiment of the scripture. And so I, I am always scanning sites like, um, you know, Upworthy and StoryCorps and on being on being is my second Bible. I think, um, (laughs) I, <laughs> there's just such such rich narrative in in all of all of Krista Tippett's work, um, and then I have my go to authors that I cite pretty pretty regularly. But um, yeah, I also I also use personal narrative sometimes, or just stories of of people that I know. I stay pretty engaged um, with with people from every part of my life through social media. And so what I find is that I've got, I've, I'm connected with people who live all over the world because I've lived in 
multiple settings, um, people who are in all sorts of different professional and social contexts, um, again, because I've come by way of some, some very different kinds of places and, and professions, and uh, it really just kind of gives me a, a rich pool to draw um to draw relevant stories from. So that's that's kind of where I where I start and I I get up there with some notes on on Sunday and see where where the spirit takes us. So um that I would call my style pretty um creative and and organic but also very very informal and and um conversational. Okay. You just blazed through about three of my questions, so. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'm at, uh, what is your favorite story to tell? Oh, gosh. Okay, do you mean biblical or personal or? Any story. Any story. Man, I think that changes. Podcast appropriate. <laughs> okay. I think my favorite story would would change from maybe from day to day, but certainly from season to season. One mm. of the best ones I've heard lately, and I've, it, it is applicable to really just about any, any kind of sermon or, or setting you might be speaking in, whether it's, um, you know, whether you're in church or the public square, whether you're in Lent or Advent, it's, it's just a story that will preach anywhere you drop it. And so I've been telling it <laughs> and using it a lot. Um, in everything I've keynoted or, or sp- presented at this fall, I've used it. So I think this is a good one to share. It originally, and I'm going to check my, I want to, um, cite my source here correctly. It was originally on the, uh, podcast Invisibilia. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? I am. Okay. It was on the Invisibilia podcast several months ago, and it was a story of some friends who were gathered for a dinner party, and they were in the D.C. area. It was a beautiful spring night, and they were celebrating something. One of the friends had just opened a restaurant or some kind of milestone like that, and it, it paints the picture of this just perfect um relaxed and celebratory gathering and then a an intruder comes into the scene and so you're you're in this this perfect kind of idyllic backyard setting it's evening and children are playing and people are eating and laughing and and all of a sudden there is um a villain in the picture and this man has has come in through the house and he's standing at the table and he's got a gun and he's demanding money. Have you heard this story? Do you know where I'm heading with this? I do not. Okay. And um and and the the scenario kind of escalates as it it becomes clear that the people at this party are not carrying cash and and he gets he gets more and more agitated. Uh, as he as he realizes that nobody has anything to give him and people around the table try these various approaches to talking him down. One even says, where what would your mother think? Um, and and none of that works. Everything just just continues to to agitate him more. And it, it becomes clear that this is not going to end well. Someone's going to get hurt. And and finally, um, 
one one of the women there named Christina stands up and says, would you like a glass of wine? Hmm. And he's he's so taken aback by that that he at first he doesn't know what to say. And then he says, sure. So they give him a glass of wine. And as he uh, he takes a sip and he just kind of stands there a minute and he says, damn, that is a good glass of wine. And I clearly I have to edit that in in church setting because there's usually kids around. But he says that, damn, that is a good glass of wine. And then someone else sitting nearby says, well, we have some really good cheese that goes great with that wine. Would you like a piece? So so he says yes. And then he's got a glass of wine in one hand and a gun in the other. And he has he has to put down that gun to take the cheese. So he he drinks the wine and he eats the cheese and they start engaging him in these other ways. Um, and at some point he stops and he says, this is going to sound really strange, but could I have a hug? And at that point, I feel like the story could turn re- a little bit too precious for mm-hmm. my my taste, but it doesn't. Um, there's something still so powerful about all of the all the elements of that story crammed in together and then. This guy kind of just asking in a really vulnerable way for some small token of, of human affection and touch. And so they they kind of all gather around and embrace him. And then he walks away. Um, and the thing that I think turn turns the story or, or makes it doesn't just leave it hanging there on that edge is that... Um, after the party, as the guests are leaving, they they go outside and on the sidewalk in front of the house, he has he has set down his empty wine glass and left it left it behind. And so it's it's not broken, it's not thrown or cast off. Um, but he also didn't take it with him. Mm-hmm. This man has broken into, you know, take whatever he can get from people and. Ultimately, he he leaves with the wine, but not the glass. And there's there, there's just a lot in that story that we'll preach. And so, I've uh, I've squeezed a lot of good stuff out of that, and I'm sure I'll use it some more at some point. That's very interesting. Did he take his gun with him? I don't remember. I was thinking that I got to that part and um, I could not remember the implication. If I recall, the implication is that he did not. Then huh. he took the glass, took the glass, but not the gun. Free gun. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I'm, 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 I'm gonna write that one down. <laughs> I'm sure I'm I some... can find a space for it somewhere. I hear there are occasional biblical passages that speak about things like repentance and conversion. You mm-hmm. know, and not to, mention, not to mention nonviolence. Nonviolence. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Wine, wine comes up. That's right. Yeah. The transformative power of community. You can take that any number of you could. any number of ways. Well, thank you for that story. I'm sure several listeners will be making use of it. Mm-hmm. And to this uh, this episode is a little different than most. Usually, we just take a month's worth of passage and talk them through. But for a couple different reasons, we're going to be tackling more than that this go-round. First mm-hmm. off, it's the Lent season, and 
I was looking for a guest who had an entire Lent sermon series planned, and it just wouldn't be fair to ask Erin to come on and share about her Lent sermon series and not give us the chance to hear about the last two weeks. Uh, but also, I'm planning to have a special Holy Week episode, so I needed to divide up April somehow. So, uh, we are going to be trying to get through six passages. Uh, we are both doing Ash Wednesday services, and they will kind of kick off our Lent sermon series. If you have questions about that, feel free to contact me. But we're going to focus primarily on the Sunday passages, which are a whole lot of parables, minus two. So, we begin on March 5th with a little-known parable from Luke 10 called the Parable of the Good Samaritan. No one's ever heard this one before, so you can do anything with it, and it'll be brand new. Uh, so, Aaron, tell us a little about your series overview, and then let's dive into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Into Luke. Okay. Well, as, as you know, if you're doing the narrative lectionary, all, nearly all of the passages for the season are parables, which is really exciting. I think there's just a deep a deep well of uh, meaning and images and and modern day things that we can can pull out if you're looking at at a whole series that's dealing just in these stories that Jesus told. Um, but as as most contemporary preachers know, those stories have have been really kind of simplified and sanitized and reduced to these these really simple morality lessons that we that we mm -hmm. use in Sunday school and children's sermons and they kind of boil down to a a two word or a, a two line lesson about now which person in this story do you want to be? And the answer is always um it, it's it's just a really evident kind of black and white thing. Mm -hmm. Um and really these these parables are so revolutionary and so edgy and some of them are even dark and and Jesus is clearly telling stories that are meant to completely upend the world and and turn everything on its ear and reorder every every unjust system that that humans have managed to um manipulate into God's creation and so it seems like they're really they're really timely right now as we think about justice issues in our in our current setting um, and the ways that Jesus used these stories of of pretty simple, ordinary, everyday things to model a completely different way of living in the world. And that's why our the title of our series is Everyday Marvels. Uh, we okay. were we were thinking in terms of ordinary revolution, but I feel like the term the revolution has been really overused Lately, resistance and revolution; those are those are words that um, that we're using in a really political context these days. Not that I'm against that, um, but I think it it kind of takes away from the broader the broader strokes of of Jesus' stories here. And so, we're looking at these parables as a way of reevaluating uh, personal relationships, our idea of of global economy versus God's economy and even down to like our, our personal 
relationships and our our daily spiritual life. And so we're kind of going to going to wade through every element of that through the course of exploring these parables. Okay. Um, so if you want to start with the Good Samaritan, I always I say always because I've preached this more than a few times. I always start a sermon on the Good Samaritan by citing everything I can find in the news feed for the week where the media has called somebody a Good Samaritan. Hmm. And <laughs> it's usually, you know, somebody who has, um, you know, pull, pulled a person from. A, a car wreck or saved a cat from a tree or in some cases even, you know, maybe paid people's Christmas layaway bills. But in any given, any given Sunday, I can look back through a week of the news and find, um, sometimes even locally, multiple examples of, of someone in the media being called a good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's become this kind of, really generic term for any kind of do-gooder doesn't matter if it's um you know somebody who's doing a good deed on a small scale or a large scale we use the same term for for just about any any kind of good deed and um clearly all of those those good acts of kindness deserve to be recognized but in in using this term to define that particular kind of, of compassion, it really simplifies and minimizes the, the thing that Jesus is trying to call attention to here, which is a, a compassion that overcomes all kinds of boundaries. And that's, that's kind of where I take the focus from that, that day to day, um, you know, do a simple good deed for your neighbor versus overcoming all the barriers of culture and race um, and economy that that we tend to live in and place our neighbor in, and how how does our faith call us to overcome those? Uh, my friend Chris Fur, who's a pastor in North Carolina, said, um, preached this story a few months ago in the context of uh, police shootings. It was that that one week where there were like three right right in a row that were highly publicized and politicized um and and he talked about my friend chris in this sermon he talked about the privilege of not seeing hmm. he he really took this the story of the samaritan and kind of used the um hang on looking through notes here used the the example of the those who passed by to illustrate the the power of white privilege yeah and how in so many different scenarios the people who have privilege have that luxury of turning away choosing to walk away like the folks in in this story do the priest and the levite um you know these are clearly people who have the luxury of passing on by. So what is it about the Samaritan and the Samaritan social status that um, that makes him different? What is it that calls him out of the, the boundaries and the limitations, which would be significant on a Samaritan in that time? 
and and calls him to to do the right thing in this moment where others just go on by. So um, there will definitely be some talk of of privilege in this story. Um, But I think it's also relevant here. Usually this episode is separated out from the Mary and Martha scene. Mm -hmm. But in this in this particular pairing of the narrative lectionary includes the Jesus visit to Mary and Martha, where Martha is distracted by too many things and Jesus tells her there's need of only one thing. I, that that passage is the it's the original mission focus sermon. Yep. That that message against busyness um, in our own lives and in the life of the church, the need to fill every moment and um, use every resource and never have you know never have a blank space and never have a free moment and um, overprogram ourselves till, till we are just completely spent. Um, and so how does that pair with the parable? How does, how does the, the Mary and Martha moment ask us to, to kind of look back at the good Samaritan and reframe that willingness to stop and see? To, to get out of our whatever hole we have dug ourselves, whether it's busyness or resentment or privilege. But, um, you know, how does this need for only one thing yeah. ask us to, to shake off all of our excuses, the, the things that keep us from seeing? That's good. I like that. Yeah, thanks. So... My series focus uh, for Lent is sort of an extension of the unofficial theme that I've given my churches for the year, which is a return to focusing on on discipleship Mm. and really seeing how everything flows out of being good disciples. So Mm. during, during Sundays on Lent, I'm taking each of the lectionary passages to focus on a corporate aspect of Christian discipline. Hmm. So actually the pairing of the two passages really was helpful for kicking off this particular series for me. It's, it's a very easy entry into a conversation about what it really means to answer the call to Christian service. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I'm probably going to be talking about during this sermon, I I think I got this from one of Rob Bell's NUMA videos, but those are just so hard to cite because I don't remember which one it was, and they have such weird titles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I They're could... They're hard to describe if you're not watching it because yeah. a lot of imagery... Yeah. But so I, I believe... It was there. It may have been one of his random YouTube videos. I don't know. But at one point, I'm pretty sure I heard Rob Bell talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, he he talks about how the way Jesus tells the parable is actually a, a subversion of a didactic technique that was used by the Pharisees. That Interesting. They would use that, that threefold 
story, and they would start with, I think it was actually the Levite first, and then they would narrow in on what the priest would do, and then the third one would be, but a Pharisee came along, and... You know, the, the Pharisees' adherence to the law would put the other two to shame. So as you're hearing this story, the, the claim was that by the time you get to hearing about how the Levite goes around and the priest goes around, you're, you're getting primed for the Pharisee to do something that's even more in line with the whole stay away from a dead body thing. Maybe he, he turns around on the road and finds a different way to go, uh, or, or, or something even more than crossing the street. So Jesus really pulls out this one, two punch of first and then a Samaritan. You, you know, the Samaritan's going to be the hero of the story because the Samaritan comes third and that's how a three part story works. And that's bothersome because Samaritans are terrible heretics from that other country and we hate them and, and they claim to worship the same God as us, but they don't and they've perverted the worship of God and they're cretins and, and inferior and, uh, you know, all the things that we still say about, uh, right. people that, whose ideologies are slightly different from ours and therefore terrible. Um, and then the Samaritan doesn't one up the priest and the Levite in the sense of taking the law even further, but violates the basics of the law, says, I, I don't care if I can walk into the temple tonight. Why would I want to stay ceremonially clean and go to the temple at the expense of another person's life? That makes absolutely no sense. And so he cross he doesn't cross the road. He he picks up the man and doesn't just save his life, but commits future funds, writes a blank check to the innkeeper saying, whatever this man needs, take care of it. I'll cover it. Uh, that, that depth of service. Um, and I'm actually breaking this up into, so that's going to be the focus of, of the Sunday sermon. And then I'm going to try to play around with Facebook Live the week after to talk about the Mary and Martha portion and how mm. we today are not usually super concerned with adhering to uh, ritual cleanliness laws, <laughs> but what causes us to cross the road is one of two things. It's, it's usually either privilege is a big one. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many times well-meaning people have said, oh, you know, but when I'm in that neighborhood and I see someone coming down the street, I cross the road. It's like, mm -hmm. And you don't hear the racism dripping out of your mouth as you say that? Okay. Um, or the, the other one for especially, you know, middle-class white people is we worship at the altar of being busy. And we are so busy that, you know, you might... How many times are you driving along the road and you see someone pulled over with a flat tire and you think, gosh, I really hope someone helps them, but I got to get to my appointment. So mm -hmm. it's, not, or I'm, I'm wearing my work clothes and I can't be down in the muck because I'll, I'll walk into work all dirty. So, you know, I, I feel like that second story really drives home mm -hmm. the excuse that we in the white middle class bubble use as a way to cover up what is right. really a, a desire not to serve and often has some very deep seated uh, racism at its heart as well. So yeah. that's what I'm playing with. Yeah. Sounds good. 
Yeah, it's going to be fun. We go from there to, oh my gosh, this passage. Uh, Luke 13, 1 through 9, and 31 through 35, the tower in Siloam, and the parable of the fig tree, and Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, because, you know, one of those things was not enough to deal with in a week. So, (laughs) Aaron, go for it. Well... So I'm going to I'm going to pseudo cop out here because I'm not preaching that week. My um, associate pastor is preaching. So I have a lay preacher preaching. That's right. (laughs) But I am guiding them. So, yeah. Well, and I will tell you, though, what I see in this. And sometimes when there's a pairing or a triplet, I, I feel like it's best to not try to hit every one of them, but find the common thread. What what are the three together trying to tell us and then use one to draw it out? And and one thing that I see in this in this passage is and it's centered around the fig tree image, but is the the notion of our time versus God's time. Mm -hmm. And since, you know, in Lent, we're talking about our economy versus God's economy. I think the economy of time is a powerful preacher. Mm -hmm. In fact, one one Lent is two years ago. We did a whole Lent series on time. And it it was, I think it was some of the most powerful preaching I've ever done. And it really, really resonated with folks. I didn't preach every week of it. Um, we we had kind of a staff partnership with that. But we, we started with this, the kind of vast and overarching idea of time, like all time and the cosmos. And then we, we narrowed down... Um, Week by week, we moved into thinking about a generation, the the time in which you're placed on the earth and for what purpose and what we share um, and carry from our ancestors. And then we moved into like the notion of a lifetime um, and kind of moved gradually towards a greater urgency towards Holy Week. So we went from a lifetime to, you know, basically a season to a final, um, the final week of Jesus life down into the final moments of Jesus life. So we went from the idea of infinity to the urgency of a final breath. Um, and it was, it was a really cool way to deal with so much of our human angst about time. Um, cause if you think about all the, all of our biggest fears about about death, about failed relationships, about scarcity, um, everything is rooted in our our interpretation of time, or in a lot of ways, our misinterpretation of time. So we got into a lot of good, you know, science and psychology kind of stuff, but ultimately it was it was a, a theological overview of of the idea of time and the biblical notion of time so i see i see a lot of that in the fig tree and i don't think you can do all that in one sunday but um there are certainly elements of it that that bear on this particular series about the everyday and the um the ordinary and how do we how do we view our lives in ordinary time and and how a particular moment contributes to a lifetime and our our bearing on the earth so that's kind of where i would take some of this Hmm. well i think i have my 2019 lent sermon series 
<laughs> Did you call I, that time for Lent? Because that would have been delightful. No. Oh, um, you missed the pun. Gosh. Darn no, it. No, no. <laughs> it was, I think it was, um, it's about time. And then, I'll accept it. That's, that's yeah. sufficient. And we had a big um, Hogwarts-style hourglass sitting on the Ooh. communion table. It's pretty cool. <laughs> or Hogwarts or the Wizard of Oz, depending on your <laughs> genre, genre preference. But um, Could you make it, Phil? Yeah. Yeah, we did. It was cool. Well, that's fun. So <laughs> I'm... Kind of doing the first two of the three. The Lament Over Jerusalem was difficult to work in. Um, so our discipline for Lent 2 is really going to be focused on giving up worry in favor of prayer. And mm. I, I really saw the combination of this this theodicy passage, the Tower in Siloam, all that, with the fig tree story. Mm. There, there's definitely a timing element there, but there's this combination of, in the first, Jesus is answering people's anxieties about what's coming and when's it coming and how's this going to happen. And then the parable of the fig tree is this very, it's, it's very open-ended. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't get the rest of the story unless you go and read The Shepherd of Hermas, which is not in the Bible and, and very few people have read. Spoiler alert, I did my uh, master's thesis on it, and it's my favorite book ever. But anyway, yes. uh, so, but the the response to the coming demise that the, uh, that the servant in the parable of the fig tree gives is... Please just give me some more time to work on this. If we're assuming, which I think we're supposed to, that, that the master is God, mm. uh, we have to notice that God never responds to that request. Yeah. Uh, we don't know how much time the servant ends up getting. We don't know if the fig tree gets to cut down the next day. Right. But what we do know is instead of freaking out and saying, that's my fig tree, that's, you know, my livelihood or the pride of my garden or wh whatever the fig tree was for the servant, it's clearly important because he doesn't want to cut it down. He prays. He, he, he puts in a request to his master and that's where the story ends. So as as we're looking, especially in the present climate, I, I'm watching my folks' anxiety levels just skyrocket. Uh, you know, people that never talked about current events are suddenly talking about current events and how everything's terrible and, and awful and, and nothing can possibly go right. And... You know, I mean, I'm sure there's an element of overreaction involved there, and, and we're kind of creating this feedback loop. There's also definitely some some things happening in the world that are are awful, and and we ought to deal with. But I'm I'm challenging folks to not just pray, but find someone to pray with and for. Mm -hmm. uh, good old fashioned prayer partners and. 
not even so much pray about your own concerns, but find that other person for whom you can pray. Uh, I'm even going to offer matching for anyone who signs up. Yes. And, uh, you know, for, for them, you pray for them. They pray for you. You have the comfort of knowing that you're being prayed for. Uh, there's, there's a lot of power in that prayer. And that's, it kind of sneaks in to the lament over Jerusalem at the end because Jesus' words sound an awful lot like something a psalmist would have written. They they read as though someone has this deep concern, and clearly he's not talking to any human around him, because what are they going to do about it? Uh, so I, I see him offering that lament up to God as this is this is awful. Uh, I, I, I tried, I really tried, and now I see that it's not going to happen in my time, um, which is an interesting thing coming from Jesus, because... It's going to happen in God's time and Jesus is God, but it there's almost a sense that Jesus feels that, that he has failed and he now knows that, like the fig tree, uh, you know, Jerusalem is, is going to be cut down in a way because it, it hasn't borne fruit and seems to take some degree of personal responsibility for that. So cool. that's that's where I'm going. And I don't have a Facebook Live sermon planned for the rest of these. That was just Lent 1. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Lent 3 is some other not-so-well-known parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son, the triumvirate yes. of children's plays everywhere. That's right. And I love I love this trilogy, and I love them together. Um so I'm not into, man, this seems like a long way away. It's like four <laughs> weeks. There's a lot of Sundays between here and now. But um, at first glance, I start thinking about the worthiness narrative hmm. at play in all of these. Um, we, at, culturally speaking, we have some worthiness problems, both focused inward and outward. We We can be terribly hard on ourselves in terms of, you know, what we're supposed to look like, how much we're supposed to make, what our titles and roles are. We, we got a lot of baggage around that, but also in judgment of neighbor, um, who is worthy, mm -hmm. and especially in the church, you know, who belongs, who's in, who's out, whose sin is the worst and whose sin needs to be condemned by the Constitution and, it, and you know, the public schools, if necessary. Like, there's just so much in there. Um, and I see this whole trio of stories to be about worth. Um, because first of all, okay, so if you're a parent and you're reading these stories and, and you look at the sheep, the coin and the, um, the sun, there's kind of a clear hierarchy of worth here. Um, like let's say you lost a sheep and some money and a kid all on the same day. There's no, there's no question as to which one you're going to go after first and which one matters most in, you know, in the order of your mind. Um, but there's clearly a common thread between all of these stories that they all have significance, um, that they're all worth fighting for. And so I think, again, we're going back to that idea of God's, God's economy, like what, 
what are we supposed to learn here about the sheep and the coin that makes them um, equal on some weird plane to to the worth of a child? Yeah. Which clearly they're not in the literal um, fiscal sense. You know, nothing is is worth as much as your child. But what what is the worth of? Um, no, so I, I think there's something here about the whole the whole person um, mm-hmm. that we don't that that we can kind of shake the dust off of some of our cultural expectations of ourselves and others and and look through some kind of more um, holy lens of of whole personhood and. Um, how how is that evident in this this kind of economy where we value everything that's given to us? Um, so that's not to say that a lost coin is literally worth as much as our child, or that a lost sheep is literally um, worth as much as the last penny that you have in the world. But that that in some way everything that God has given us is to be valued. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we are called to be good stewards of everything that, that we have. Um, but another way to go with this, too, is the if, if you wanted to focus more on the, the prodigal son story, um, the use of the word compassion here. I always find that compelling because there are a lot of other words that I would choose there when the father shows compassion. Mm-hmm. I would say I would say forgiveness or grace or mercy or no, but compassion is it's the same word used in the Good Samaritan a couple weeks back. Yeah. And compassion in the Greek word for that in this sense is has to do with a suffering with. Mm-hmm. So a to to fully enter the suffering of another person and to think about that 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 means the same thing in this story as it does in the good Samaritan. How do we, how do we frame that? So, um, yeah, clearly I don't have a lot of shape around that yet, but something, something about the worthiness narrative of our culture versus the worthiness narrative of, of Jesus and the gospels. Um, there's a lot of potential there. Sounds to me like you've got a lot. Hmm. If that's not a lot to you, then uh, you don't want to know what my sermons seem like far <laughs> in advance. Uh, <laughs> so these stories, to me, all represent a degree of of foolishness. Yes. Um, that that I I wonder if we are somehow separated from because we are not shepherds and we are not women who have tiny amounts of money uh, because culturally we're not supposed to have money um, or even the whole inheritance thing. I mean, when when Jesus starts off with, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one would not leave the 99 to find, or leave the 99 in the wilderness specifically uh, to go and get the one. I can just imagine every single shepherd hearing that story being like, uh, me, I would never, why would you go look for one sheep and leave your 99 unprotected? That sounds like a stupid idea, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention that he's like, oh, and then when you get the sheep, you go back and you have a party, right? You invite everyone over and have a party. 
which is going to cost you about as much as it would have if you just let the sheep stay gone. Uh, and then right. you get to the lost coin. It's kind of the same thing. Like you lose one coin and it doesn't specify the value of the coin. Who's to say? But you light a lamp and, and you waste valuable oil and you spend your day sweeping instead of doing your chores, making bread, whatever it is you need to su survive. And then you find your coin and once again, invite all your neighbors over and, and throw a party, which mm -hmm. hospitality demands you probably just spent the coin you lost. Um, and then he gets to the, the story of the prodigal son and you're ready for, you've really been primed for the son departure to to trigger in the father this you know need to bring him back in the same way that the shepherd brought back the sheep and the woman brought back the coin mm -hmm. but the dad lets him go and he comes back on on his own terms and culturally there there's some foolishness that's shown by the father a in giving the kid his inheritance in the first place rather than smacking him and saying no that's not going to happen what? uh but then when he comes back basically readopting him declaring him as son once again the the ring and the robe are a pretty clear indication that he gets an inheritance again but the the common thread that i see among these three people is this this boundless joy at something that seems mm -hmm insignificant bordering on foolish for each of them uh if if the father goes out and says my son's back the community is not going to be thinking yay he got his son back his son was lost this is great like, wasn't that the one that took all your money and wasted it and left like why are you happy yeah. about that um and and the other two just the pure cost of of the celebration makes it incredibly dubious and so clearly there's there's something going on here about the extravagance with which god treats us because uh, right. we're we're not the shepherd or the woman or the father uh we're, we're the lost thing whatever that may be and god is just super excited about each and every one of us and and has to share it with everyone and so why are we not uh, eager to share that awesome news? And in a, in a mainline New England context, the idea of sharing the awesome news about God is foreign. It's almost anathema. Mm -hmm. People get their hackles up if you say the word evangelism. Uh, oh, yeah. And... That's, a, that's true in a progressive church, too. In oh, any, absolutely. In any community, a progressive church is going to go. Yeah, oh. I... Uh, it's not polite to talk about our faith. <laughs> my my church in Kansas, instead of having you know an, an evangelism team or anything like that, we had a a committee of community and member development. Uh, mm -hmm. That church, was... ours is church growth. Yep, church growth yep, is perfect. Our... Um, mm -hmm. And here I I discovered they don't have anything any longer. But once upon a time they had a committee for Christian recruitment, which I'm like well. That sounds worse than evangelism to me. So um, uh, we're going to talk like a, about oh, we're going to talk yeah. about sharing the good news on March nineteenth, and uh, okay. maybe people will will want to have that celebration. Plus, it's it's the halfway kind of a halfway point in Lent. Uh, the halfway point will yeah. be a little later, but Holy Week is pseudo Lent. So 
you know, reminding in the midst of this this period where we're focusing on on discipline, on personal discipline, on corporate discipline. Uh, the blog post I have going up that same week is on the discipline of celebration. So, you know, re really reminding us that spiritual discipline does not mean you don't get to have fun and enjoy life. In fact, it's an expectation that you will enjoy life if, if you're living a disciplined life. So that's kind of the both and that I'm approaching on the 19th. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Lent four. We're almost at the end of March already. Mm -hmm. uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Luke sixteen nineteen through thirty one. What are your thoughts yeah. so far on on this baby? Well, um, one thing to know about Saint Andrew is that on the fourth Sunday of every month, we have what we call Shalom Sunday, where the the kids who would normally go out to worship and wonder stay in the sanctuary. So um, it's all very intentional, intergenerational worship on that day. So we try to make it an engaging day for kids, and we try to keep things short also, which is nice for people with kids. Um, but on this particular day, we're going to have so – we've got some church members who are trained biblical storytellers, Ooh. which means they do um, dramatic – interpretations of, of scripture. So they're going to do, they might do several of these because the parables really lend themselves to that model, but they're going to do this one on that day. And in my head, that's going to be a big part of the message is the story itself. And you almost, when you've got kids around, you don't want to overinterpret. You have to kind of let the story be the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're familiar with children's worship and wonder, they um all of the parables come in these great little gold boxes and so what the kids are familiar with is is the parables begin with opening this box and pulling out certain elements and talking about how the parables are like treasures um so i'm thinking we might incorporate some of that imagery that day so after the folks have told the story we might do something with a box and pull some things out of the box that um, it, we won't use the, the actual worship and wonder version of the story because that doesn't always translate in the larger worship space. Mm -hmm. But we will use some of those elements that will make it familiar for kids. So that's kind of cool. Um, but what, what I really hear in this story is, is a condemnation of the prosperity gospel, which is – a cool thing to talk about in Lent, um, again, when we're thinking about economy and God's economy. Right. Scarcity and fear of scarcity. There's there's a lot of anti-prosperity gospel in here. And we live in a, a really affluent suburb. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't pockets of, of need and struggle in our community, but just on the whole, Johnson County and um, the, the neighborhood the church is in, in particular, is pretty pretty middle to upper class. Um, and I think that even though we don't preach a prosperity gospel in this church, there's a prosperity gospel about the culture that we live in. Right. That it's, it's entirely secular, but it says if you live right, you're going to have all this stuff. Um, and if you don't have all this stuff, you're doing something wrong. And um, that's where your worth is tied up and that's what your value is. And so I think this, 
this story is a good opportunity to push against that. The challenge is going to be finding a way to do that 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 relates to children who have not quite yet been programmed for in that way. So how do we, you know, how do we find the the beginnings of that narrative and kind of uh, nip it in the bud before it it really takes hold of our children? Do you really so, think they haven't been programmed for that already? Well, I think they have in some some small and material ways, but I don't think they've quite got their whole sense of self-worth and their whole idea of God wrapped up in it yet the mm. way that adults do, if that makes sense. So I think that they might, um, they might have some unhealthy attachments to their stuff and their things that they want. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it's as consuming in, in young kids as it is in adults. So, and I wonder too if there's a way we can even, um, you know, let the kids kind of teach, ha- have have a voice in the lesson. Like, how do what do we learn from kids about what our relationship to wealth should be, and um, and what it means to uh, see ourselves in light of the wholeness of our, of God's being and not yeah. just what we have and what we can acquire. Yeah. I, I do wonder that with kids, just, I know I'm not the only parent to observe that the most common three word phrase used in my home seems to be, I want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, at the same time, it's, it's very evident that, were it not for constant marketing of a specific lifestyle, mm-hmm. most kids start off rather happy with with simplicity and empty boxes, right? Yeah, it's it's only through the the barrage of commercials and the the wanting to be similar to their peers that mm-hmm. you know they they develop that that approach to life and it really sticks with you for, for a long time. Uh, the, the minimalists, uh, there are two guys that are, as you might gather, minimalists, uh, <laughs> have a quote that they, I think they end their Ted talk with it among other things. And I'm going to remember it, right? I swear. Uh, but it's, uh, love people and use things because the other way around is just wrong. Mm-hmm. And yeah, somewhere along the way we, we have a tendency to flip that. So, yeah. Have you read Lee Hole Moses book? Um, more than enough. That sounds incredibly familiar, but I don't think I've read it. It's new. It's just come out in the last few months. It's really wonderful. I okay. highly recommend it. I'll have to take From a look at Westminster. That. Westminster John Knox. Okay. They put out decent stuff. Um, so there's a lot in this parable that is, it's really hard to parse out one specific thing that you're going to deal with. And mm-hmm. I'm ultimately, I'm, I'm taking kind of a simplicity oh. approach, the discipline of, of simplicity of fasting of, you know, mm-hmm. those aspects of, of life of refusing to let the quest for more dominate us. But 
it's been really difficult to to pare down that sermon because there are at least two other rather important lessons <laughs> that uh, I just don't think I can do justice to all three of them. But you know, right. w- one of them is I think a very important thing in some contexts, and my discernment tells me it's not the case in my own. But really. taking this particular parable as an opportunity to address how when Jesus describes hell Mm. it's it's never the same thing twice and I don't think Jesus is really ever talking about what we have termed to be hell but every time hell comes up it seems to be this kind of reversal of fortune that happens and so what is it about the hell narrative that we could possibly reclaim in a way that does not result in you know if you live in excess you'll die and go to hell but poor people get to go to heaven because that's that's been used in incredibly abusive ways to to tell poor people it's fine you don't need to you're you're gonna get to go to heaven so you should let us take advantage of you. <laughs> um, um, but really looking at what is the hell of our own making. Right. Because that's clearly what's going on here is the rich man finds all of the things that he was worried about in life happen in death. And he probably mm-hmm. lived the way that he did out of a belief in scarcity and the idea that this this all could dry up anytime so i'm gonna feast sumptuously every day i'm not gonna wait for an opportunity i'm gonna wear my fancy clothes every day because i don't know when this thing's gonna end and i gotta get mine while i can right and so i i think there's something telling in asking ourselves what would the hell of our own making be and what does that tell us about where our priorities lie mm-hmm. um and then the the other piece that's been rising as as i've kept an eye on the headlines over the last year is there is a very strong anti-Semitic interpretation that has carried weight in regard to this particular parable for quite mm-hmm. some time. And mm-hmm. we certainly don't use scripture as anti-Semitically as we used to, uh, but we're not free of it yet. I mean... Yeah. Going back two weeks, the whole lament over Jerusalem, preachers are going to have to take great care to mm-hmm. make sure that when they talk about Jesus' lament over Jerusalem and the Tower in Siloam, that it does not become something like, you know, the Jews used to be Jesus' chosen people, but uh, in in that moment, he realizes that he's got to give up on them and pick new people, mm-hmm. uh, right. which, which I heard Yikes. growing up. <laughs> I I absolutely have heard people preach that in the last 15 years. Um, I'm reading, um, and and you might be too if you're doing this this same these same texts. But um, Amy Jill Levine's book, the short stories by Jesus. You familiar with that? that? Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm reading that too, and she she really talks about the anti-Semitic readings 
present in all of these parables that the mm-hmm. ways that they've kind of been interpreted and, and drawn into that, that particularly anti-Jewish voice of, of the mainline church sometimes. So that's, that's oh, yeah, really there's... interesting to, to not just, um, to not just warn against that, that kind of reading, but to give us some tools to push back against it. I think that's really mm-hmm. important. Yeah. And, and, and they're, they're definitely in, I mean, any interpretation of any New Testament text has a rich history of anti-Semitism. Uh, thank you, Barnabas. But, you know, this one in particular, I I recall reading multiple treatises on how the setup of the rich man is often used as a way to delegitimize the Jewish priesthood. Mm-hmm. And... The use of the name Lazarus, for some reason, uh, I, I forget the specifics as to why, but was thought to be this this endorsement of the Greek, the Gentile, in favor of the rich man. And that's always felt like a stretch to me. I mean, the whole feasted sumptuously and wore purple every day sounds an awful lot more like a condemnation of Rome than a condemnation of the priesthood to me. But the... The tradition is definitely there, and I see it come up from, and and this is really the key point for me, it comes up from folks that are adamant, adamant that they are are not at all anti-Semitic. Right. And, you know, any time you see that that deeply entrenched anti-Jewish reading Mm -hmm. of things coming out of the mouths of people that claim to be not at all anti-Semitic, it, it tells me it's just so entrenched in that text that uh, I don't know whose context that is important in right now, but as I see Jewish graveyards being desiccated and bomb threats being sent to Jewish community centers, um, it, it feels like a word of warning there is is mm-hmm. necessary and do with that okay. as you will. And yeah, it definitely applies to all of these particular texts, but I was feeling it very strongly as, as I prepped this one. Um, so Lent 5 is the healing of a blind man. It's Zacchaeus. It's Jesus not really giving a parable, but talking about seeking and saving the lost. Luke 18, 31 through nineteen ten, which is a long passage. Take it away, Aaron. Um... Wait, tell me again which verses you're looking at. Uh, Luke 18:31 through 19:10. Yeah, I'm going rogue that week. Because um, ah. I feel like that. So that's the narrative lectionary. That's Zacchaeus, right? Yep. So I feel like that broke the parable mojo. It did. So I'm going with the earlier parts of of Luke 18. So it's still linear, um, but it's the the parable of the 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 NIV and NRSV call it the parable of the persistent widow and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want me to get into those since that's not go for working. it. Well, um, I, when I see that subhead, the the parable of the persistent widow, all I can think is um, nevertheless she persisted. <laughs> 
But the fun thing is I already did that this week with the, or this past Sunday with the, the woman with the alabaster jar. Yeah. And that's, that's how I set up the sermon was all these men just looking at her. Who does she think she is? She doesn't belong here. And they, they shamed her and they threatened her. And nevertheless, she persisted. And I kind of wondered into this, uh, you know, how many women in the Bible could you take and insert into that precise narrative and end the story with nevertheless she persisted and it's really almost every single one of them yeah anyone that gets a name anyway <laughs> that's right that gets a name or even a mention and then here we are just a couple weeks later and it literally says she persisted yep so i may pick up that thread again i probably won't um you know politicize it quite so much but that that thread of persistence um in in approaching jesus because if you think about how many times the disciples were turning people away who who came to him, that's kind of, of where I went because it's whether it's the disciples or the Pharisees or the temple authorities, somebody's always turning someone away from Jesus. And these these folks that come looking for healing, looking for mercy, looking for um, acceptance, forgiveness, whatever it is they're looking for, they have to be persistent um and so i kind of took that and turned it turned it around to um the persistent compassion of jesus and the persistent mercy of jesus that overcomes all these barriers that keep people from coming to him so i think for this fifth sunday of lent you can do that with this pairing of parables you've got the woman who is is very persistent um Followed by this unjust, um, no, 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 not the unjust judge. I'm sorry, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of back to Pharisees again, and the the lack of humility and and all that. So I'm um, I'm thinking about um, how how persistent that that grace of God is that that follows us all the way through this season where we're kind of out in the wilderness and. All the way through um, the the human journey, Lent's kind of a good time to get into some of that, um, you know, sackcloth and ashes kind of stuff. But um, in this particular story, I'm thinking about like uh, it's really kind of a stewardship sermon. Right. If you think about, and, and not just in terms of generosity, but how we care for all that's been entrusted to us, whether that's the environment or our relationships or, um, you know, our, our resources, but that this, this woman comes again and again, believing that, believing that there is justice for her, believing that there is mercy for her. And what do we learn from that about both, um, asking for that kind of mercy and then also granting it. Hmm. So I think the, uh, the publican in that second story definitely takes that same approach of, mm-hmm. of persistence. Uh, and it's interestingly contrasted with the Pharisee who clearly seems to think he's already arrived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll be a really interesting narrative. Well, I, I stayed on lectionary, but I'm also kind of, it's kind of a stewardship sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, I zoomed in on Zacchaeus and then zoomed back out, but I I wrote down in my notes six months ago, probably, mm-hmm. uh, just said, when we receive compassion, we have compassion. Um, and that usually when I do something like that, it doesn't stay. The idea might stick around, but I'm actually putting that exact phrase in my sermon three or four times. And I I look at the transformation of Zacchaeus when Jesus accepts him and shows him the, the compassion, the love that he's clearly been seeking and how quickly he turns on a dime and says, you know, I've, I've received this fantastic gift. And so I must give. And in his case, it is a financial gift. It's, I give half my things to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay them back fourfold, or mm-hmm. something along those lines. And there's definitely a, a financial aspect of our own call to give to stewardship, right. but it's certainly not an only money kind of thing. And so... Yeah. Um, what I'm going to be asking is because of all that you have received, what is it that you feel compelled to give of yourself, of your time, of your talent, of your treasure, of whatever it may be, or all of the above? Uh, what does the gift that you have received inspire you to give others? <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think somehow that goes hand in hand with Jesus statement at the end of this particular passage, uh, that I came to seek and save the lost that, you know, he's, he's looking for folks who do not yet realize they have received the gift of God's grace. And I think that some of the explosive growth that we read about in Jesus ministry, you know, Luke loves to talk about how many crowds were following Jesus and then carries that right over into acts with what seemed like inflated attendance numbers. Um, You know, I, I think it's really that, that impact that we see embodied in the person of Zacchaeus that having received clearly the grace of god and being made aware of that reception he -hmm. cannot help himself he has to pass it on and there's there's something to that that we forget over time right when you know it's been years that i've considered myself a christian that I know that I have a relationship with Jesus or however it is that you personally, you know, refer to that aspect of your life, that compulsion wanes over time. And so how how do we recapture that within ourselves? Because that seems to have a huge impact, not just on us individually, but in turn primes us to do fantastic things for the world around us. Mm -hmm. And, and I, truly believe that's how the kingdom of god is spread so i'll preach i hope so (laughs) we'll find out on april 2nd Um, so we have one last week to deal with and it's palm sunday are you treating palm sunday as part of your lent service series just wondering i am um and here's how 
it's very vague right now. But <laughs> so you've got you've got parable after parable after parable, and then all of a sudden, even though it's in the same linear um, set of passages, it's all of a sudden something that we are supposed to read as a historical moment. Um, so I'm starting Palm Sunday as though we're saying, um, what if this was a parable too? Hmm. And I don't know where that takes us yet, because that's a long way away. But that's the question I'm starting with, is what if we were to read this story of the triumphal entry as a parable? And what would it still have to teach us? If you just focus on the imagery and um, the underlying word that it gives us, what what does it still have to teach us? And can we find some modern-day parables that kind of reflect reflect this same narrative. So that's that's kind of where I'm heading with that. And I might do something again with the gold box uh-huh. for the kids because Palm Sunday is a pretty kid centric Sunday. Um, but what you know, what can we pull out of that gold box that has to do with this story and that would would be kind of a powerful image for the kids and that that would tell us something about coming coming with joy, coming to to bless God's name. Um, what is the, what's the role of the crowd in any given, that's what I always come back to on Palm Sunday is what the, the crowd is such a powerful force in every single gospel telling of this story. And so, um, it's, it's one of those days that's kind of easy to find our place in that crowd, but what does it mean once we do that? Interesting. I, I think you have, uh, accurately captured what I consider to be the the spirit of the narrative lectionary, which is really the freedom to read these texts as stories first. Right. And not get so bogged down in, did this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, because fact is, we don't know. And if the if the early church is any indication, there's only a handful of things that it seems we must proclaim definitely happened and Mm. the rest of it well it didn't make it into any of the creeds or anything else until the last hundred years and i doubt that we came upon some revelation in the last hundred years that makes us know more than all of them um and, and right. there's there's definitely a freedom that happens when you start treating a story as a story. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't have to wrestle with, is Jesus a good guy in this? Because Jesus is always a good guy. So, uh, but I, I, yeah. I, I will be curious to know really where you end up with seeing <laughs> the triumphal entry as a parable. Because that's, that would be a lot of fun to hear. Uh, do you, yeah. do you record your sermons? Yes, we do. It doesn't always make it to the website, but we do. I know we that do. Feeling. Mm-hmm. We're working on it, but yes, we do record. And I, I'm with you. I've I've been trying to think about how to make better use of you know Facebook Live and Google Hangout and all these ways that we can kind of bring people into worship who aren't physically with us. So yeah. there's some potential there. I may have to go online and Holy Week and and look that up of yours. Okay. Um, so. I'm really zooming in on the the worship aspect of this narrative. And by the way, I don't think I said, but it is Luke 19, 29 through 44 for those playing the home game. Um, 
you know, this is this is an impromptu act of worship on the part of the crowds. And in case we're not 100% certain that that's what's going on, you have this interaction between Jesus and some angry people where he says, I tell you the truth, because Jesus is always telling people the truth during stories. Uh, I, I tell you the truth that if they kept silent then the very rocks would cry out so mm -hmm. clearly this is a time that has been ordained to sing the praises of jesus and they are doing what is fitting and right and so naturally the corporate practice that comes to mind for this sunday is a combination of practicing sabbath and corporate worship mm -hmm. um and 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 the power that comes from worshiping together um i i don't know about your context or the context of listeners but what i have seen throughout my ministerial career is this increasing tendency to super hyper individualize faith and religious practice and religious meaning mm -hmm. and, and everything and I get that, and it's oh, it's a pendulum swing. You know, we're probably at the peak of the whole personal relationship with Jesus thing, and it's going to swing back the other way. And in 20 years, I'll be saying, "Gosh, whatever happened to personal relationships?" But in, in this time and in this place, um, there is something that happens when we come together and we pray together and we sing together and we all focus on on the one thing together at the same time that i personally have been unable to rep uh to, to replicate in my personal acts of worship and right. given that i have the freedom to be in a job in a career where I get to do my personal acts of worship on the clock, so to speak. Exactly. Um, and, and I have the freedom to do things like study scripture and prayer and, and do all of that stuff and say, yeah, that's my job. People who are saying, oh gosh, you know, I, I maybe read the Bible once every three, four weeks and I slip in a prayer at mealtime, mm -hmm. you know, Maybe their faith is simpler and stronger than my own, but I have to imagine if if I'm struggling to to replicate the power of corporate worship in my own life and mm -hmm. or more realistically, if I've stopped trying to replicate that because I know it's impossible, right. uh, then folks that say, you know, I, I get my religion on my own and, and do it, do my own thing, go on a hike, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, man, you're missing out. <laughs> And, oh, yeah, I know. I and, know. Uh, Palm Sunday, this will be my first Palm Sunday at these churches, but I'm also acutely aware that for some reason there is still a, a strong Palm Sunday tradition at these two churches that mm -hmm. attendance sees about a 50 to 60% spike. So threading the needle on that one will be tough because I certainly yeah. don't want to seem as though i'm i'm guilting folks because <laughs> right. i i don't want to be but at the same time that feels like a message worth hearing to someone mm -hmm. that only gets that corporate worship experience two three times a year so yeah yeah 
hopefully that will go well and not result in me being one of those preachers that people talk about that are always, you know, criticizing guests. So mm -hmm. we'll see. Good luck with that. <laughs> well, uh, we have made it through Lent in this podcast, although we haven't even started the Lent journey in reality. Uh, thank you, Aaron, so much for participating and those of you who stuck around for a slightly longer than average episode. And may your Lent be a wonderful, somber time of reflection and, and renewal and refocusing. Yeah. Thank you.